With mandatory minicamp underway at the VMAC and training camp less than two months away, the Seahawks are feeling pretty good about where their roster stands heading towards the 2023 season. What's one more move they could make to put a cherry on top? Rob and I are going to be discussing and debating on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. You are Locked on Seahawks. Your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked on Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, host of the Locked On Seahawks podcast. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. Mandatory minicamp. It's underway at the VMAC. Plenty of players that didn't participate today, including Jordan Brooks and Jamal Adams. That was expected. They're not quite ready to return to the field yet, but they were in attendance watching practice. We're going to discuss some observations from that first minicamp practice, and we're going to be looking back at the 90s, bringing back Throwback Tuesday today since the Seahawks decided to officially announce when the classic Blue and silver threads are going to be donned this season. It sounds like not just once, but two games. So we're going to discuss that and look back at some of our favorite memories from the Seahawks in the 1990s. Should be a really fun episode. So let's get to it now for our lead story here on our Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. Going into the offseason, as Pete Carroll stated shortly after losing the 49ers in the wildcard round, the Seahawks had a goal of getting more dynamic and closing the gap with the San Francisco 49ers. And I think, Rob, you and I would agree in many ways the Seahawks have been able to do that this offseason. And yet it still feels like in part because money ran dry here late in free agency that maybe there's a gap or two that still needs to be plugged. And that leads to an interesting question. If you can only pick one more move for the Seahawks to make before the start of training camp at the end of July – to really put a bow or put the cherry on top if you're thinking Sundays here. How can you put this strong offseason and get the finishing touch on it? And so I think this creates an interesting dynamic because you and I were kind of discussing this before the show, and I know that you're going to maybe go a little bit out into left field in terms of what you think the Seahawks, if you had one move you could make, what they should do, assuming they're able to open up the money needed to make this move. Yeah, it might be viewed as left field, maybe even left guard, certainly right guard possibilities. I, I just really like the the positional versatility that a player like a Dalton Reisner, who is still just 27 years old, and Corbin, for the last eight years, the four years that he's been with the Denver Broncos, the four years previous to that that he was the Kansas State, Kansas State Wildcats, this guy's missed a total of four games during those eight years due to injury. Um, he is arguably a Pro Bowl kind of caliber player. He allowed three sacks a year ago. He did allow, I believe, a career high. And it was about 25 different quarterback pressures. But remember who the quarterback was that he was suddenly blocking for. We know, Seahawks fans know very well, that protecting it for Russell Wilson, a a quarterback who is going to run around as much as he does, then it's going to make it a much more difficult proposition for him. But I still see a very young um, and a very versatile player. Reisner played his first season at Kansas State center, the last three at right tackle, and he's bounced back and forth between left and right guard in Denver since that time. 
I, I believe that the Seahawks have a very good right guard already in Phil Haynes, who already has his starting experience. I think that they have a starting caliber right guard of the future drafted already in Anthony Bradford. I think that's the case. I also believe that Damian Lewis is a very good left guard. Damian Lewis is on the final year of his deal. And again, I am thinking, I'm projecting Seattle's success with uh, whether it be Haynes or Bradford at the right guard position. But there's not a lot of, you know, reliability in in those two thoughts. And so that's why I I do believe that the defensive line continues to be an area of concern. If Al Woods was still available, um, I think that would be my my position that I would be kind of saying I think the Seahawks should focus in on. But with a classically built traditional nose guard not available in free agency, at least not one that I think is a significant upgrade over what is currently on Seattle's roster, then in my opinion, Corbin, of all the positions that Seattle could have possibly addressed right now, and there's some really good football players still available. I mean, obviously, New Hopkins is still available. So there's some good players out there. But in my opinion, the one position that Seattle could still fortify with a legitimate starting caliber player still available in free agency would be at the interior of the offensive line with a player like Dalton Reisler. And I'm just picturing some of our listeners right now trying to concoct a reason why Nuke Hopkins should be joining the Seattle Seahawks because, you know what, really good football players, you try to find ways to bring them in. But with Jackson Smith and Jigba being drafted in the first round and the receiving core that Seahawks already have the money they have invested in that position – That is not going to happen. I think that your line of thinking here is really interesting because, as you mentioned, you and I have both talked about this a lot this offseason. Phil Haynes does not have a ton of experience because he missed a lot of time his first two years due to injury, and then they traded for Gabe Jackson, and suddenly there is not a path forward into the starting lineup for him. But last year he was in that platoon with Gabe Jackson, and I thought he was the better player of the two guards, and clearly the Seahawks felt that way at this point with a younger option in the 27-year-old Haynes. They were 3-0 in the games he started, and then Bradford has the athletic ability that you don't see from 330-plus pound offensive linemen coming into the NFL, but he's only got one year of starting experience at the college level, so there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of upside with those two players if they can stay healthy, if they can develop, if their fundamentals improve. But if you could go out and get a guy like Dalton Reisner, who has been a starter for four years in the NFL, has been that borderline Pro Bowl guy that's known for being a pass protector first and foremost, you know Geno Smith would be excited about that, having another player that can step in. I I just don't know, though, with the two other players they have, I guess I have more confidence maybe than you do that one of those guys is going to be able to step in this year and be a quality starter that has room to grow after this season, and you're hoping Bradford's that guy in the long run on a rookie contract. But I've got to go back to that defensive line that we have talked about ad nauseum ever since Al Woods, Quentin Jefferson, and Shelby Harris got released. And speaking of Shelby Harris, if I'm going to put a bow in this offseason, and some of you may have read my article yesterday, I've already expressed in 1,500 words why I think that this is the move the Seahawks need to make, but I'm going to tell you again here on the show why I think Shelby Harris coming back is the move that absolutely has to be made by the Seattle Seahawks. They need a veteran presence that knows this 3-4 scheme inside and out. Now, Draymond Jones did play alongside Shelby Harris for a couple of years, but that's another argument that I think you can make for bringing him back. 
Those two are already going to have chemistry. And I know that Shelby Harris is not your traditional 330, 340-pound nose tackle. Nobody's going to mistake him for Al Woods. I mean, he's still a big man. We're talking a 300-plus-pound defensive tackle. But he's not that gargantuan great wall of Al Woods that we've seen the last couple of years in Seattle's defensive line. But he has ample experience playing inside. I don't know that he necessarily is a guy that you're going to put head up on the center a lot, but you can do some different things schematically and have him play the nose position in the A gap, and he can be very effective. He did it for a number of years for the Denver Broncos. He played more in that three-tech role, but when they needed him to slide inside, he was still very effective defending the run, and he caused problems as an interior pass rusher. And I think you go beyond what he can still do on the field at 31 years of age. This guy was an incredibly popular player in the locker room. The young guys and the other veterans all loved having him in the locker room. And I think when you've got two rookies in Cameron Young and Mike Morris, who's adjusting from playing edge to being a full-time defensive tackle, having a veteran like Shelby Harris, who is likable, is going to lead by example, also is not going to be afraid to put rookies in their place because he can be plenty vocal too. I think that the ramifications of him as a mentor and a leader would really galvanize this defensive line. And the fact that he can play that nose tackle position, maybe not the type of nose tackle that Al Woods is, what Brian Monet they're hoping is going to be again coming off his injury. But this is a guy that Cameron Young and Mike Morris could learn so much from, not just on the field practicing, but seeing what he does in games because he's still a very effective player over 30 uh, quarterback pressures last year for just the second time in his career. So there's still plenty left in the tank. And it's not like he's an old, old man at the position either. Again, he's 31. And defensive tackles can play at a high level into their mid-30s. The Seahawks have had guys that have done that. So I think this needs to be Shelby Harris coming back in. I know that financial situations probably what's holding that back right now. But find that middle ground with Shelby Harris, do what you got to do, whether it's a restructure, an extension, whatever, open up the cap space you need and get it done before training camp so that you have that veteran presence that can still play at a high level and also mentor the young guys. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. I mean, I, I think that bringing back Shelby Harris would be a fantastic move by the Seahawks, as I mentioned before, without Woods. And I really think that that is the position that Seattle has to address. Uh, Shelby Harris, uh, for all the reasons that you just gave, Corbin, I mean, his positional versatility, his experience, the locker room presence, uh, you know, frankly, that, that's one of the things that some people have criticized Dalton Reiser because of, uh, you know, the video of him pushing former Denver Broncos backup quarterback, Brett Rippon, uh, you know, Dalton Reisner and Shelby Harris, for at least from everybody I've seen and, and my everybody I've talked to in my own eyes as, as them as competitors, I think that they would add to Seattle's locker room, um, just either one of them because of who they are as competitors, their, their, again, their, their, their consistency, their, their durability, um, and, and just who they are as men. Um, you know, so again, I, I'm certainly not going to criticize the idea of going after Shelby Harris. I would mention this one last thing. I, I don't know that the Seahawks need to add a, a bow to, to their, their class. I, I really think that they did that basically with the draft. I think if they wind up finding a starter yet again in the fifth round, as they did a year ago with Tariq Woolen, and they do that with Ola Watimi, at least addressing the interior of the offensive line that I just raised my hand as saying is a huge concern, or within the fourth round pick, 
with Cameron Young, the nose guard potentially taking that spot that uh, you and I and Mina Kimes and every other Seahawk, uh, you know, fan or uh, interested party out there um, is kind of clamoring about, then I think the Seahawks are already going to feel like this Christmas present already has all the wrapping on it. Yeah, that may very well be the case, and maybe we will get into late July camp will open and no other significant moves will be made, but John Schneider has a history of finding ways to do that. He also has a history of giving players extensions right before training camp starts, which would create some of the financial room to maybe make one more addition to this roster. Coming up next, the Seahawks kicked off mini camp today at the VMAC. We're going to discuss a few takeaways, a few observations from day one of Mandatory Minicamp coming up next year on our Tuesday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This episode is brought your way by FanDuel. Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA Finals because right now new customers can get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. That's right, $2,500 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Then you can bet on everything from the money line to points scored and three-pointers drained. I'm a huge fan of player prop parlays, and you can make bets such as Jimmy Butler scoring 20 points at negative 1,100 in game three of the finals, and you'll get paid instantly if you win. Plus, FanDuel even lets you combine your bets for a chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. There's no better place to bet on all the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash locked on and get a no-sweat first bet up to $2,500. at FanDuel.com slash locked on. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. You're listening to the Tuesday edition of Locked on Seahawks. I'm your host, Corbin Smith. Glad to be joined, as always, by my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. And a special thanks to all the 12s out there, whether you're listening in the middle of the country in Iowa or listening in nearby Redmond. We greatly appreciate you making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Every day, make sure you're tuning into our Wednesday episode as we dive into what took place at day two of Mandatory Minicamp. And take a look at a competition brewing at the edge rushing competition or edge rushing position that may last deep into training camp. We'll be diving into that. So make sure that you're tuning in and listening. Speaking of mini camp, the Seahawks kick things off today at the VMAC. Now, Rob, you and I, unfortunately, were not able to be there, but we have our ways to be able to get a hold of video footage and be able to chat with people that were there. And so we have a pretty good idea what went down today. And I'm just going to say this to kick things off here. We've been really hard on D. Eskridge, and for good reason, because the numbers have not been there his first two years. He's had injuries, and when he's been healthy, most of the time he's been a relative non-factor on offense and on special teams. And you don't expect that from a guy you invested a second-round pick in. But, and I'm saying this with a grain of salt because it's off-season program, no contact, any of those things, and we know the injury history. But this is the first time where I feel like buzz about D. Eskridge seems genuine and it's palpable. You can see it on the field. And today he scored a long touchdown on a skinny corner route where he just blew by the secondary. Could have been a, a secondary coverage bust there potentially, but either way. You saw the speed and the playmaking ability the Seahawks thought they were bringing in a couple of years ago. And so I say it again, this has kind of been something that's going on throughout OTAs as well. Eskridge has quietly had a really good offseason at this point. Maybe bringing in Jackson Smith <clears throat> and Jigba with the fire he needed underneath him. But nonetheless, 
I feel like the energy, the buzz surrounding Eskridge right now, it feels genuine. It feels palpable. And I don't think we could say that the last two off seasons because, quite frankly, he's been injured most of the time. Yeah, he really has. And it's exciting when, when you see that kind of explosive athleticism on, on the field and you just kind of imagine the possibilities because, you know, with uh, the the huge investment that Seattle just made in Jackson Smith and Jigba, then you know that the defenses, when they do see D. Eskridge on the field, then they cannot possibly dedicate more than just one defensive back to try and cover him. He is going to get single one-on-one coverage. And this is a guy who has legitimate 4-3-4-4 speed, has terrific change of direction and to me one of the things i was most intrigued by with d eskridge when the seahawks first drafted him was his kind of balance through contact this is a former defensive back this is a guy who plays physical he can take a a a shot and be able to spin off it score a touchdown that's the one touchdown that he did score that i've seen so far in the nfl that's exactly what happened is he took a shot goal line kind of spun off it fell into the end zone that to me is one of the most intriguing things about it. And I love that you mentioned the Eskridge. I did not see video of that 70 plus yard touchdown. I definitely have read some reports about it. I, I can imagine it um, because it's something that I saw him do at Central Michigan many, many times. I did see video of D. Eskridge and many other Seattle wide receivers and tight ends catching the ball in the red zone from some beautifully lobbed passes from Geno Smith. I believe that it was the Tacoma News Tribune's Greg Bell who put that video on Twitter. And it was just Geno Smith lobbing balls into the back corner of the end zone. But I have to echo the excitement that you are uh, using right here with D. Eskridge. I'm going to say the same thing with Jackson Smith and Jigba and Kobe Parkinson. Those three men in particular. When Geno Smith threw the ball in the end zone, you guys can watch the plays if you'd like uh, again on Twitter. But it, it was it was the body control. It was how quickly they adjusted to the ball in yep. space. And what I really love when I'm evaluating wide receivers or tight ends when the ball is in the air, obviously you have to catch the ball. But I want to see guys snatch the ball. I want to see the ball here and then into their chest immediately. So the defensive back, who is, of course, not in the play on these particular snaps I'm referring to, because that would be a competitive situation, and you can't really be doing that right now. But in you know, ideally in real football, that's something that the receivers, the pass catchers have to be able to do is to protect the football. Well, we know that. And just to see that type of, uh, of practice, that type of focus, um, that that to me is very encouraging. Yeah, you want to see natural pass catching ability. And exactly. you can see that in Jackson Smith and Jigba. You can watch any clip that's getting posted right now from practice, and you can just see the way he plucks the football out of the air, gets it into his frame quickly, that natural catching ability. And I haven't always seen that from D. Eskridge when he's been on the field. But I do feel like right now what I'm seeing – there are, there are clear improvements there, and maybe him just being healthy and having a normal offseason has allowed him to be able to play more to his caliber because he is a talented football player. We just haven't gotten to see it on the field. So if you can get the best out of him and Jackson Smith and Jigma coming right away, I mean, again, you put those two with DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett and Kobe Parkson or whoever else is on the field as the tight end – Good luck for defensive coordinators trying to figure out what to do. And you know the happiest man in the entire Pacific Northwest because of that is going to be Geno Smith. Now, flipping over to the defensive side of the football, it's really hard this time of year. I think on offense you can make more tangible evaluations when it comes to skill position players. Last year, Tariq Woolen was an exception to the rule at defensive back. You could just see that 
Reek the Freak was different. I was blown away a little bit today by the report about Devin Witherspoon, who has been gradually working his way into practice. He's been very limited to this point. But the top five pick mostly playing in the slot today. And that piqued my interest because many of our listeners might be thinking, well, this might just be a situation. They're just trying to get him some snaps and they don't want him playing on the boundaries. He's trying to get back from this hamstring injury. But I look at, at it a little bit differently, Rob. This is a different style player than the Seahawks have had sure. that can play dominant football on the outside. But he also played a lot of snaps in the slot. He moved with the best receiver in Seattle has typically not done that in Pete Carroll's defense, but maybe they're going to change their focal point on that with Devin Witherspoon, because he has that attitude to him. I want to be defending the best guy. And maybe this opens the door for Mike Jackson, who we talked about yesterday. Maybe this opens the door for him to get some snaps playing outside corner across from Tariq Woolen and Devin Witherspoon's playing in the slot. Kobe Bryant's banged up right now. So maybe that is the way that Devin Witherspoon starts his career, kind of as a hybrid corner, and eventually he's going to be on the boundary with Tariq Woolen. But it does give you a lot more flexibility with the types of coverages and looks that you can throw at teams. And oh, by the way, he can also blitz and blow people up in the run game. So he checks off the boxes to be able to play inside as well as outside. He's just a damn good all-around football player. So that report definitely piqued my interest, just looking at the depth and talent Seattle has a cornerback. Yeah, you just took some of the words right out of my mouth there when, when you mentioned his blitzing ability, his ability in the run. You know, obviously, if you were playing at that nickel corner spot, then you are closer to the line of scrimmage, closer to where all the action's happening. You're not all the way outside. And so because Devin Witherspoon is as physical as he is, um, then I, I think that that does offer you a great deal of, of possibility. The same thing, you know, Kobe Bryant is a very physical player himself, but it's his instincts that you're, you were really excited about with him he is not quite as athletic not quite as physical as witherspoon but he is that same caliber of an instinctive football player that's why he was the thorpe award winner a couple of years ago you know so i i, I do think that it's intriguing that seattle is using witherspoon there i think that he can excel in that spot the same thing the same reason why i think that jackson smith and jig but i think it's kind of silly that he is being typecast as strictly a slot receiver i, I think that that jackson smith and jig but he's proven this um, but I just think that he's such a savvy football player that he can play outside should Seattle ever need him. I think the same thing here with Witherspoon, that he can play inside, he can play outside. I do think that Mike Jackson, as well as Tariq Woolen, are both because of their height, because they're relatively high hip kind of guys, that they – well, and as you said, it's just a different level of athlete. I mean, there's there's no rules when it comes to him. But Mike Jackson, he's kind of that classic outside press corner. Um, and, and I do think that he could struggle a little bit. If you asked him to play inside against those classic slot receivers, you know, those little 5'8", five, 5'9", five, type of guys that are so quick, I think that that could get Mike Jackson in a little bit of trouble. That's where I think that Witherspoon has that, that, that possibility. Again, I think that Kobe Bryant can do that. I really believe that Trey Brown can do that. I think that Mike Jackson is a little bit more of an outside corner. And I don't want to make that sound like it's a bad thing. I think it's a very good thing. I think Seattle's cornerback depth really is one of the strengths of this roster and, and really one of the better positional groups in all of the NFL, in my opinion. Real quick tidbit before we move on to Throwback Tuesday here to close out the show. But Mario Edwards was finally on the field today 
for the Seahawks. And again, there's only so much you can gauge this time of year. You're not seeing him battle against offensive linemen, things of that nature. But he looked like a very lean 280 pounds as the Seahawks list on the roster. A big guy that just looks lean, muscular. And I think that experience he brings, the, the production he had rushing the passer and stopping the run last year for the Titans playing off edge. He has a history playing three tech as well. That is maybe that veteran addition that maybe makes it that you don't have to go out and get Shelby Harris because you're confident that Mario Edwards can be that veteran that can be a mentor that young guys can learn from by example and maybe has several good years of football left in him. And so I'm intrigued to see what he does. It was just nice to see him on the field. He wasn't with them up to this point due to personal things he was dealing with. But getting him out there, that is a player that has a chance to potentially play for a starting role with the Seahawks after being signed late in free agency that Pete Carroll and company are pretty excited about. It'll be fun to watch him as the rest of minicamp goes on going towards training camp at the end of July. Fans have been waiting for a long time, Rob. We get messages in our mailbag segment. I feel like every week it's died down recently because fans did find out the throwback jerseys were coming back in 2023. So they finally got an answer from the franchise. No one helmet rule anymore. We now know officially when the Seahawks will be wearing those classic 90s blue and silver uh, threads. They are going to be wearing them just before Halloween. You can't tell me that was not done on purpose. This is going to be their Halloween attire, October 29th against the Cleveland Browns at Lumen Field. Fans will finally get to see those classic 90s with the green and white accents, piping, the silver and blue uniforms. They're finally get to get to see those. The players finally get to wear them. Guys like Quandre Diggs that have been crying for them for the last several years, you finally get to wear Quandre. The 90s are coming back now. Hopefully the play from the 90s does not come back this year. And it kind of led us down this road today with knowing they're going to have these throwbacks for at least one game. Bob Condota, Seattle Times, said they may wear them in Dallas too since the Cowboys wear white at home games. That would allow them to wear their, their uh, silver and blue classic throwback jerseys on the road once this year. But we were talking about it, and it's hard to be nostalgic for the 90s because the Seahawks only made the playoffs one time in that entire decade, and, and it was a difficult time to really watch this team. At the same time, though, there was a lot of really crazy stuff, awesome stuff that happened during that decade. And so you and I decided, why not throw together a top five memories list from 1990 Seahawks football? I was a young kid. I was I became a Seahawks fan very early in my life, but that was the early 90s. So I remember vividly watching games like, I enjoy watching this, but why can't we win? But you and I come from a little different perspective there, but still, I think that'll make this conversation interesting. So I'm going to dish the mic to you real quick here. As far as some things that jump out, what are some memories for you from the 1990s for Seahawks football? Well, Corbin, as you mentioned, the 1990s was a, a difficult generation to be a, a Seahawks <laughs> fan or, or, or follower. Um, you know, there was only one year in that entire decade in which the Seattle Seahawks made the playoffs, and that was the last year of the decade in 1999. So, um, you know, Seahawks fans have been a little bit spoiled. Uh, you know, Pete Carroll and John Schneider have been working together for the past 14 drafts. Uh, you know, Seattle had four different head coaches 
during the 1990s and going all the way back to Chuck Knox to, uh, you know, to, to uh, Flora, Tom Flores, um, who was Chuck Knox's general manager for a couple of years prior to Tom Flores, the former longtime Raiders Hall of Famer, um, took over as, uh, as the Seahawks head coach, but some pretty ugly years during the, that time. Uh, Dennis Erickson comes in uh, to Seattle. He previously had been a college coach, of course, um, Washington State, Idaho, famously at the University of Miami, won a championship there. Um, and then, of course, Mike Holmgren, who is going to lead the Seahawks to the very first Super Bowl appearance. But, of course, that's going to happen uh, the decade after that. So that's where I would start off with is, again, just how fortunate Seahawks fans are here with they've had the consistency at the head coach position. Uh, that they have with Pete Carroll during this last uh, era. Um, but certainly during the 1990s, it was much more tumultuous for different head coaches during that time. Yeah, not just that. They had six different starting quarterbacks, which I know was high on your list as well. So they had a lot of changes at head coach. They had a lot of changes at quarterback. Not a lot of success either one of those positions in the 90s. For me, what comes in first on my list I got to start with a positive here. Chris Warren, who we have had as a guest on the show a couple times, great guy, great guest, was a fantastic football player, one of the best running backs in Seahawks history. Rob, he ran for the third most yardage from 1992 to 1995, and that was largely without the threat of a good passing game to go with him. That is as impressive as you are going to see. The only two backs that were ahead of him, Barry Sanders was one and Emmett Smith was the other. Those were the only two other running backs that had more rushing yards during that four-year span than Chris Warren. It's unfortunate because I think if you would have seen him in an offense that had a better quarterback, his numbers would have been better by default just because defenses wouldn't have been able to gang up on him. But Chris Warren's success comes in at number five for me because he really was one of the best running backs in franchise history, and it gets lost because a lot of the teams he played for were abysmal, including the 92 team that won just two games. And Warren Moon, I'm going to stick with positives here as well. At number four, Warren Moon almost came to the Seahawks in the 80s when he was coming back from the CFL, and he ended up going to the Oilers. And Seahawks fans believe at that point, we may never see Warren Moon come back to the Pacific Northwest. But mid-90s, he does return. He comes back, and not only does he return, he finds the fountain of youth. He was almost 40 years old, and he made the Pro Bowl for the last time in his career. And he was the Pro Bowl MVP that year. Second season in Seattle didn't go near as well. But at least for one year, he still played like a top-10 quarterback. And I know that in a difficult decade for Seahawks fans, that that brought a bit of peace and, and a bit of enjoyment that had not been there for several years of the franchise. Just a lot of excitement, as you mentioned before, Corbin. I mean, Seattle shuffled through six different quarterbacks during this time. I mean, my goodness. And and I'll just leave that out there for a moment. Those those longtime hardcore Seahawks fans out there, you know, we intentionally did not list all six of them up there. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, you might see a picture of Tacoma's own, Central Washington's own, Seattle Seahawks' own, John Kitna uh, on there. But I'd ask you to think about who those other five quarterbacks are. I'll mention all six of them by name here just a moment but again that was a huge part of it uh as you mentioned corbin warren moon brought 
Pro Bowl panache to the, to the position. Um, and, and Seattle had simply had not had that. So it was absolutely spectacular in, in watching uh, Warren Moon kind of continue the success that he had basically every single place that he had ever played football um, and, and bringing it back to the Pacific Northwest. So that was definitely a highlight. Really quickly, on, on those six quarterbacks, for those of you who uh, you know think back that, that far, um, I certainly remember Mudbone, Dave, K, uh, Dave Craig, um, one of my absolute all-time favorite Seahawks. Uh, then, then fortunately, there there were some tough some tough times with Stan Gelbaugh, um, who took over as Seattle's primary starter uh, a, a year later. Rick Meyer, the Rick Meyer experience was an interesting one, uh, one that I, I definitely, anytime I think back at the 90s in the Seahawks, I definitely remember Rick Meyer, John Freeze, the aforementioned Warren Moon, and then again, John Kitna as well. So those are the six quarterbacks. Uh, it, it was the transition among the quarterbacks that I thought was interesting. And again, just shows how spoiled that Seattle has been with Russell Wilson uh, over the last several years. And obviously with what Geno Smith saw a year ago, but it was, it was the pass catcher rather than the passer that I thought was also interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, Corbin, as you mentioned, you're a younger man than I am. I, I grew up in 19, you know, I was born 1976, the year that Steve large, the man in the Wheaties box right behind me. For those of you watching, when, when he joined the Seahawks and from a get from the very beginning, Steve Largent obviously wound up carving out his Hall of Fame career. But I remember early on watching the transition from Steve Largent to number 89, Brian Blades and just seeing a, another spectacular route runner, hands catcher, didn't necessarily have great speed. And then watching the transition during the 90s between Brian Blades, that polished route runner, good physical all around football player to the absolute speedster. That was Joey Galloway. It was one of the very first NFL drafts I ever was so excited because the Seahawks were going to be getting somebody. There were three dynamic wide receivers that year. J.J. Stokes from UCLA, Michael Westbrook from Colorado, and Joey Galloway from Ohio State. And every Seahawks fan out there just wanted one of them. They wound up getting the best of the bunch, the most dynamic player, arguably, in Seahawks history at the wide receiver position in terms of at least just pure speed, pure electric playmaking ability. And so that definitely was one of the absolute highlights of the 1990s as well. One of the big highlights for me, again, you and I were at different age groups in the 90s. I was just learning about football. And I remember at the young age of five, and this tells you how long I have loved football because I remember Dwayne Harper constantly forcing fumbles at a historic rate. In the 1993 season, he forced every time I say this, it just mind boggles me. 10 forced fumbles in the 1993 season alone. And I don't think he came anywhere close to doing that again, like not even in the same zip code. And he had a good NFL career, but that was just one of those outlier seasons for any franchise in the NFL. And it just felt like every single game, like last year I thought I was seeing it again with Kobe Bryant for like four or five games, punching the football out. But he couldn't do it ten times like Dwayne Harper did. And one of the highest marks in a single season in NFL history. So that is a highlight for me. And then we got to go to the playoff situation. I think this is positive and negative because for me, growing up as a football fan, you know, when you're a young, when you're a young person watching football, you want your team to win. And I think that it can be difficult when you're seven, eight, nine years old to stay interested in something if you're like, this team never wins. But the Seahawks were around 500 for a number of years. So they were competitive. They just couldn't get over the hump. 
And that was really frustrating. But then you get Mike Holmgren to come over from Green Bay, and he takes the team in his first year to the playoffs. They win the AFC West. They almost beat the Dolphins in the wildcard round, just came up short. But it was an excitement that I had never felt rooting for football because, quite frankly, the Seahawks had not been in that position at the end of the year where they made the playoffs. And so it really was Seattle took a step back the next few years and her home grid didn't get back to the playoffs. But at the same time, that was really a game changing season that helped catapult them to the success, excuse me, the success they had in the middle of the 2000s, getting to their first Super Bowl and what is eventually carried over to what Pete Carroll and John Schneider have built in Seattle. Now, I think that season was really a game changer after Paul Allen had purchased the team to ensure that they weren't going anywhere and then getting to the playoffs, what was a dreadful situation, ended up looking much better at the end of the decade. Oh, no, no question about it. Uh, I was attending that game against the Miami Dolphins. And um, I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead of myself here a little bit because that was my, my number one kind of memory of it is because it did just feel like the 90s were in some ways a, a, decorate, a decade to forget a little bit from the Seahawks perspective for, for a lot of different reasons. Biggest reason, of course, just the fact that, again, they, there just weren't very many playoff appearances. There was not a single playoff victory. But just the fact that Seattle did win the AFC West division at that time and was hosting a playoff game, it was Dan Marino and the Miami Dolphins that came to town, coached by Jimmy Johnson. Um, and even as a young man back, back then, I recognized that those were two legends. And so certainly while I was hoping the Seahawks were going to win that game, it was pretty cool to see Dan Marino win his final playoff game. Uh, the final game that he won in the NFL uh, came against the Seahawks. And while that was disappointing as a Seahawks fan, um, it, it definitely was pretty cool to watch from an NFL fan. Um, and then finally, I'll, I'll just kind of tie uh, – this was actually number two on my list here, but but, but the, the brilliance that was Cortez Kennedy, that 1992 season that was absolutely horrific, and he still wins defensive MVP. And, yeah. and just really – it was the 1990 class in which Cortez Kennedy was selected. And I, I mentioned before the head coach Chuck Knox, the at that time the, the general manager, uh, you know um, – uh, I'm spacing on his name. General manager here uh, in, in Tom Flores. I'm sorry. Uh, in Tom Flores, gentlemen, they, they deserve some credits. That 1990 draft, Corbin, was not one that we talk about very often in terms of being one of the great Seahawks drafts. But you think about some of those players, and the old schoolers out there will remember some of these names, but definitely Tez, uh, but also guys like Robert Blackman and Terry Wooden, Chris Warren, as you mentioned before. Um, you know, it, it just it really was setting the precipice for for the future, the success that the Seahawks were going to have in the future. So that 1990 draft class, that was one that I remember as a young man, really getting excited about the NFL draft, really thinking the Seahawks were kind of going places. Um, and then again, culminating in 1999, when the Seahawks quite literally were going places, they were going to the playoffs. And of course, big things were now on the horizon. And it was nice to see Cortez Kennedy to get to play in a playoff game towards sure. the end of his career. And really just to sum things up, that that is always going to be number one for me in the 90s is what Cortez Kennedy did in that 1992 season because you don't see players win major awards on two win teams that are competing for the number one overall draft pick. Like you just don't see it. But he was that dominant going after the quarterback, stuffing the run. That was a respectable defense. Their offense was just putrid. They didn't have a quarterback. And 
that completely set them back. There were a lot of games that they would have just had average quarterback play. They would have won. That could have been a playoff team. That is how much the quarterback position can impact an NFL franchise, even back then when teams weren't slinging the ball around the way they do today. It still was the most important position on the field. And so you can just tell the respect that Cortez Kennedy had because that is not something that normally happens. But he was that dominant. The rest of the league knew it. Everybody in the country knew Cortez Kennedy was the best defensive player in football that year. And for him to win defensive player of the year on a two-win team, that still might be the most remarkable thing that has happened in a single season in Seahawks history, just given the circumstances and really is the highlight of what was otherwise. There was plenty of positives, but it was really a pretty tough 10 years for Seahawks fans in general. They're hoping the 90s uniforms will rub off a lot better when the current team wears them this October. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Subscribe and follow Locked on Seahawks on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Coming up tomorrow, we'll be breaking down day two of Seahawks minicamp and diving into a competition at the edge rushing position that is heating up and looks to be one of the more intriguing ones on Seattle's roster. You don't want to miss it. Thanks for listening in. Go Hawks.